Hi everyone, Emily back again here today. Uh, today I have a bit of a different type of episode since uh, my guest speaker is uh, right here beside me. It is my sister, Kemi, uh, Kemi Leonard, and I wanted to talk about her experience as a support person during um, both of my severe depression episodes. The first one was when I was 25 and it was sort of like a quarter life crisis. What am I going to do with my life type of situation? And the second one was more of a postpartum depression experience. And she is five and a half years younger than me. So the first time I was going through my experience... Oh, I wasn't 25. You got that mixed up. You did. The second one was 25. Postpartum was 25. Thanks, Cam. <laughs> wow, I was younger than I thought. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of things happened in the 20s. Because I was still in high school. You were still in high school. So yeah, with my first experience, it, I was 20... I would have been 22. 22. Yeah, it would have been right after university, a year after graduating university, pretty much on the dot. Mm-hmm. And you were in your grade 11 years so as a teenager witnessing um, your older sister go through this. And then the second time I was 25 and I call the first one a quarter life crisis because it was more like after university, what am I going to do with my life? And the postpartum had pretty much the same themes playing in that, uh, plus the added pressure and heaviness of having a baby and a partner mixed into mixed into the blend so this is a yeah pretty tough subject um, but as you guys know I want to be open about talking about it and I feel there's a big need for it to hear other people's stories like this um, and Cam has uh, trained as a social work well is is technically a social worker worker, has done her master's in social work from mcgill and is now about to start her career as a police officer Uh, so although she's maybe not one to speak publicly uh, as much as i like to do um, she's happy to talk on this for to help anyone that it could help so um so Cam, the first time that you saw me go through it, you were a teenager yes. and an adolescent, which is in itself a difficult time. But you had your big sister coming home in, in a pretty bad state. How was that for you to see? Um, it was pretty intense, I guess, because I always had a certain view that you had everything put together because you were quite a bit older than me. And so when I saw you come home and everything was kind of disheveled, it was very strange for me that that was your reality because I had never seen that side of you. Mm-hmm. Ever? So, ever. You were always, in my eyes, you were always so put together and so adult-like. And so for me, when you kind of had that first episode, it was very strange. Wow. That's interesting because... While I was studying engineering at McGill, I had some tough times there, like a lot of anxiety. And I remember being with my mom on the phone a lot. And it was more anxiety. It was like my life was still together, but when you went to McGill, strong underlying anxiety. I was only 12. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So we weren't 
close like this. Right. I think now I would pick up on it, obviously. Right, right. But when I'm 12, 13, 14, I'm not necessarily thinking of what my sister's mental state is. Yeah. Especially when she's not right in front of me. And on the outside, it looked kind of And when you came home for together. holidays, it was, I mean, our whole family life was a bit in shambles anyways at that time. Yeah. So I didn't really recognize anything that was different. Yeah. And that was actually something that was extremely hard for me was um, uh, being the oldest sibling of four, I had always wanted to keep everything together and keep the family together and take care of my siblings. And I was almost like the third parent as my parents were going through their divorce. Um, And they were in their own emotional, mental sort of crises almost. And so I just felt a huge pressure to always keep everything together. And when I came home in shambles and not knowing anything about life or what I wanted to do and then to have my youngest sister whom I had always wanted to care for and protect and mm-hmm. see me in this it actually added to the depression in a lot of ways there are so many levels of mm-hmm. almost like heaviness and like heavy bags that were pulling me down and that was a huge part of it um and so one thing that was interesting, you said that you had a high school friend at the time who w- you were visiting in the psych ward at the hospital. Yeah. Uh, what was it like at the hospital? It was pretty intense. It was my first time. I mean, first of all, that hospital was pretty old yeah. and hadn't been updated in a really long time. Yeah. So even just, you know, the ER was outdated. All the other units were outdated. So going to the psych ward on top of that was pretty intense like there was no color on the walls no paintings the rooms were just so bland and so dark and sad and everyone was in their gowns you can't wear your normal clothing like it just makes you feel like such a patient yeah and it probably adds to you know any of those anxieties or whatever's contributing to you being there did you ever think that i would go there yes yeah, and were you worried about that? Yes. Yeah. I think the last place I would want to visit my sister would be at the psych ward. But I think I remember mom mentioning it, you know, that she was pretty close a few times to bringing you there. Yeah. And I had already, you know, gone to visit my friend quite a few times. And I saw what it was like. And I was just, you know. Did you, I think did that you tell been, mom at the time, like, I don't want I don't that, think, or you were just I don't kind think of too young, really, I don't think people really knew that I was going to see her while oh, I was okay. going to see her. I kind of, I did it secretly. I think I had, you know, maybe underlying shame of even going there in the first place as a visitor. Because I would kind of, I would do it on my way to practice. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't abnormal for me to have the car, and it wasn't abnormal for me to be out for a long period of time. So I would, like, do it on the way to the rink go spend an hour with her and then go to practice so no one really knew where I was going and then I think only after my friend got better did I say something to mom wow yeah well I haven't mentioned it on the podcast yet but I did go with my mom to the hospital twice I think and um and I remember the first time I think I went and I was, I was sat, like, I was put on a, like a regular bed and kind of in with the regular patients. And then I spoke to the mental health nurse who was really nice and bubbly. 
um, couldn't get very deep with me, obviously. And I found that that's what I was craving was to like go deep and understand. And obviously they can't do that right away at first. Um, and then she set me up with a psychiatrist. I think I had an appointment with a psychiatrist and he was basically like, okay, well, we're going to get you started on these meds and then, and then we can kind of talk. But it was, to me, it was obvious that the main course of action was the meds and then the healing, um, the like emotional mental healing was almost seemed like a side thing. It was like in his mind, it was like the meds were first and that was like the first course of action that could help and heal me. And the, any kind of therapy on the side would be like, Oh, like a thing on the side to help. And intuitively I kind of knew that that was definitely not the way I wanted to go. So I felt right away that this person was not connecting with me on a deep level and that that was not how I wanted to get better. And which kind of added more to the depression because it's like these people who are supposed to help me are not going to help me. No. Um, and then the second time they, I, we went like directly to this special room for mental health patients coming in, emergency mental health patients. And it was this, this, uh, green painted room with no windows, like the cement walls. And there was this one small chair in the corner and then the door was this like safety door. Like I think they also put like people in, in serious mm-hmm. kind of more violent states in that kind of a space and this like safety door that they could close. And I looked at that with my mom because they were like, you can wait here. And I was like, this is so wrong. Like this is like freaking the hell out of me. There is no way I'm staying here. And so I was, um, we left the hospital right away. But I... It's, I guess, yeah, I'm talking about this with you here. I haven't talked about it before, but it's part of what I want to share. Um, just the fact of getting up out of the house and trying something that could maybe help uh, was a step in being like, okay, maybe I'm going to do something to help myself. Because otherwise I was lying in bed, literally lying in bed and just eating. And that was it for like six, almost two months. And we I were think. scared to leave you at home alone. And you were scared to leave me home alone. That was the other thing. We never talked when you guys were, were with me in that time, or did we, about specifically suicidal thoughts. I think you talked about it with mom. Okay. And then mom talked with me about it. I don't know if you and I ever had that conversation okay. the first time around. And even with my mom, I remember it being very light. Like, we didn't go deep because I was so afraid and ashamed of even having these thoughts it's like these thoughts come into your mind and you know they're wrong and then it's like and then it is a huge fear and this huge thing about just having those thoughts in the first place yeah um and then I barely talked about it with my mom but I mean you guys yeah you must have known because I was just spending like the whole time miserable lying in bed for like six to eight weeks yeah we were just terrified to leave you home alone like there always had to I be didn't someone at the house and it was just me and mom here at the time right so i would show up super late to practice sometimes too for hockey oh wow because i you know we had to make sure that we were overlapping i didn't even know that yeah that's one thing i appreciate from my family is i could feel you guys were really scared um and worried and also just sad to see me sad mm-hmm. but at the same time there is my mom has this like strength about her mm-hmm. that she kind of just keeps going no matter what that 
I was going to get better and that we were going to find a way. Yeah, I think that maybe because it was all of our first real experience being that close to being it. that close to it that maybe we didn't know how to process it exactly what's happening. So I think a lot of the emotions were there, we just weren't really showing them. Yeah. Well, I we could were feel kind of just trekking through. Yeah, I could feel your guys's fear, but mom would also always say things like you're going to get better, we're going to yeah. find a way. And it might have been a mantra that she was holding on to yeah. also because 8 weeks like that can seem like an eternity. It felt like a lot longer than 8 weeks. Yeah. I'm surprised it was only 8 weeks. It I had was. no idea it was only that that long. Really? Cuz I yeah. came back at the end of February. It was like February 28th or something. So I was in Spain prior to this. Um and then I came back I came straight home and then I remember having a talk with my brother in April, which yeah. was like the catalyst of me just yeah. feeling light again. And so that was, it was six weeks. It was all of March and April. Yeah. I don't even, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was months and months. And um, how did that affect you, like, afterwards? I mean, I know that's kind of a big question, but. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's always a fear that it'll happen again. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing. Even now? Not so much now. I okay. think there's been a different kind of change after the last one. After the second round. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think so. But, and then just the fear of going away from home, you know, and being like, I'm not going to be as close anymore. I was going seven hours away. I didn't know that you would end up in Montreal. Oh, yeah. Which ended you, up working out. When you went to school. And yeah. Went, yeah. But I was going to be seven hours away and wouldn't be much help from yeah. that far. So did you feel responsible yeah, I think so. I think all of the siblings did. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's like, and that was such a big lesson for me to learn when I had that initial shame of having my little sister help me. But that was never, it was never a burden. No, I know. But I mean, when I was exp- experiencing the shame of having you take care of me, it yeah. was huge. And then when I finally let that go, I mean, there was a lot of letting go in that process because... I was so unhappy and suffering that I was like, I have to let this go Mm -hmm. or I'm just going to suffer and drown in my misery. And I can't. So I have to let go of my pride. Yeah. Because only you were feeling that. I wasn't. Yeah. I was almost like happy that I could take care of my older sister who's been taking care of me for for a long time. Yeah. So. It was an incredible reversal of the roles and it was really healing for me to let that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And this is just also goes to show how much of the healing of depression and these mental health things, it's like, it's so much bigger than what happens in therapy or what can happen in medication. Mm-hmm. It's like an internal process within the person and within their community and family of so many shifts and growth that can happen. Um, Everyone's different though. Some course, people yeah. heal, will heal a lot differently than how you did. So. Tr- yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. Thank you. Which is why just I I feel like just following the next step of what where you feel you need to go and obviously when we're like in the clouds and darkness and grayness it's Mm -hmm. like there's nothing but there is a little voice there is a little something and sometimes we're just so afraid to like Mm -hmm. even go there that it's so what I was hearing in that time was that I wanted to study Reiki and yoga Mm -hmm. and I had just finished my engineering degree at McGill (laughs) And Reiki and yoga was like, you know, 
it was not going to be making my, as much money and it wasn't going to be as socially recognized and all these things. And it was, again, I had to let go of that pride and be like, well, this is just what I'm going to do because I'm just, mm-hmm. I just got to be happy. And that's kind of like your guys' actually, we were talk- laughing about this yesterday, but it's like, if Emmy wants to, if Emmy's going to do this to be happy, then Emmy can do this to be happy. Whatever <laughs> Emmy wants. Whatever <laughs> Emmy wants. And it's kind of this like huge pressure release that like, it at for it almost seems like a little bit belittling some like I can think of it that way but then at the same time it's like but really isn't that the truth for like everyone? I think it was just normal for us to have those expectations when we were younger that you were just so smart so yeah. you had to do something that was so smart like engineering and you or know doctor I think all of us had these expectations for you that weren't really fair yeah because the whole family like our everyone. my dad's side of the family yeah. like it was always yeah. such a um discussion topic or whenever anyone saw me it was like oh you're getting a hundreds in school well, again like, if you wouldn't you have done be... so well in school yeah maybe those expectations would have been different yeah but you were a genius to all of us yeah and I still art. love academics genius. yeah <laughs> I remember actually um I was working at a cafe after that because the other thing I wanted to do was own a cafe so I was like well I'm just gonna get a job in a coffee shop mm-hmm. <laughs> you were I think we all Gabby there. was working me, you there. and Gab yeah. worked there and uh, and again, that was really hard because after graduating from engineering in McGill with top grades, I'm going to go work in a coffee shop for near minimum wage. You know, that was, again, a hit to my pride. Which now you see, though, that all of us have had those kind of jobs after university, more or less. Still, yeah, you know? even after graduating from because, an undergrad. It's it was just because you I were was the, first the first one to go one. through it. Like, I had no shame. I yeah. haven't been working for eight months, and I've had no shame about it. Yeah. Because I'm the youngest, and I've seen what my older siblings have done. Right, yeah. So it's a totally different there's different expectations there. Yeah, I was also the first of all my cousins yeah. that we knew to uh to finish university and it was there's definitely this expectation I think from myself and from my family especially with my academic record yeah. that I would um succeed right away and jump into a job and yeah. and start making good money and climb up the corporate ladder and and things like that and so it was so hard to release all that pressure and then just go do what I wanted to do which mm-hmm. was work in a coffee shop which made me so happy mm-hmm. and I and I met some incredible people and I just love working in a restaurant and serving people like that love it mm-hmm. and um yeah anyway so that was that takeaway what else did I want to ask you about that particular time I guess we can talk about the second episode and then the second one I remember more so because you were more, older yeah yeah because yeah. the first one I was also going through your own my own teenage stuff yeah so uh, memories are vague I remember it well but not as well as the second one yeah so the second time was more of a postpartum depression kind of thing um and it had very similar themes because it was again all this pressure of succeeding in like the normal way that mm. I was expecting of myself and perceived was accepted expected of me. So it was like I was kind of getting back on my feet. Um, I mean, Vitaly and I met and then we got pregnant very quickly. So mm-hmm. that had its own extra added charge. Um, I was managing a sailing school and I did that. I did that the summer after I had given birth. So it was, Leah was about eight months pregnant. Eight months old. Eight, <laughs> Leah was not eight months pregnant. She was eight <laughs> months old. This is why I need a second person. 
She was eight months old. I worked that summer, uh, again, managing the sailing school. So I was doing something, you know, a little bit more like expected of me and proper. And then uh, she was coming up to being one years old, which is how long the maternity leave is nowadays. And again, I felt this huge pressure to decide the next step, what was going to happen with my life. And I had to find my career and I had to put her in daycare and do all these things that were expected of me that all my aunts and mothers and all the women in my family had done. And that did not align with internally what I really wanted to do, but which kind of made no sense to anyone or to myself, really. And again, that uh, threw me into into a super dark time. Almost, I got, I became closer to attempts of suicide in that time because it was the second time and it was like that was so raw and so easy to get back to those super 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 dark places and then go deeper even and there was more things involved that made you feel more shame and more guilt like a child i think yes i think so. yeah there was like you had there was someone a that was dependent added on you. charge 100% and i think also my nervous system was fried, yeah. completely fried. Um, I had a lot of anxiety through my pregnancy because because of things with Vitaly that our relationship mm-hmm. was so new and not really sure where it was going and getting to know him, plus the pressure from everything before that I was yeah. bringing into things. Um, and then that job and and I just remember, and postpartum, like after birth, our nervous systems are a lot more tender to begin with so then you add any external factors and it can just burn the nervous system so much faster and that's 100% what happened it was also approaching Leia's first birthday and the fall it was coming into the fall Mm -hmm. October um where the the light was getting less and I didn't really know how to take care of myself in the transition of the seasons yet Mm -hmm. so much and um and it was bad. It was bad. I, I, and I also, one of my go-tos is, uh, is bulimia as like, um, mm-hmm. I don't do, I didn't, I don't go to drugs or alcohol or no. like self-harming, but that's kind of my form of self-harm. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I started doing that again and eating like sweets and, and sugars and like all those kind of things, which further fry the nervous system Mm -hmm. so it was just going down a really bad spiral and cam you were living i was about an hour and a half away in plattsburgh new york you were an hour and a half away and i was six hours from my parents yeah and i had some family in montreal we were living in montreal at this time um but they were not as involved or as close as i had thought that they would have been yeah and so I was really alone I hadn't even met any friends really with kids or anything no support like zero at that time so to already be coming in with a charge of depression experience and be having a baby (laughs) with no support it's like kind of a crazy like perfect situation for some really nasty mental health stuff to, to happen really it should have been like a red flag for my midwives um, but I just could really easily make it seem like everything was was fine in, in my last um, well this happened a year postpartum yeah. so they were like oh she's fine like the the year the year after Leia's birth was kind of okay with like a lot of underlying anxiety but sort of like sort of managing it and then 
the midwives aren't with you anymore after six weeks. So you have no one, no one watching over you. So yeah, you were older mm-hmm. at the time <clears throat> and you were living further. Yeah, so, I was living further, but I think I had more of a capacity to understand what was going on. Yeah. And, you know, kind of put my emotions to the side a little bit and focus on really the safety was first for me. Oh, yeah, you had that Leia. on your mind. On Leia, Leia was my priority. And I always said that. I was like, you know, if, you know, if, if anything, Leia is the number one. Yeah. And then, you know, I kind of just went into uh, cruise control and just, like, did what had to be done. Yeah, and that's kind of when you came, you had, you were almost, like, detached. Like, yeah. you were, like, you I like looking back on it now you were really detached and it was like what needs to happen now what do I need to do what am I looking out for yeah um like I was you know I think you still had a lot of control in what was going on whereas other family members were trying to separate you from the situation yeah I was more just yeah you know emergency response yeah like being there when I needed to be there and doing what needed to be done and not worrying about everything else Yeah, there were, and that was part of what was so hard with that situation was, I mean, me and Vitaly had conflicts and we're figuring things out and, and half of my family wanted to separate us and, and, but I knew you were getting it from everyone else Yeah, and I was like, you know what, the last thing that you need is for me to be saying the same thing. Yeah. And me and Vitaly were getting along fine. Yeah. And like the last, and, and that was one thing was that I knew, and I will get into, um, how difficult things got with Vitaly at some point um they were ugly and he was it was just like a cesspool of negativity and of fear and of all the anxieties coming out from everyone at the same time so it brought out the worst behaviors in everyone yeah and and I still knew that he he was going to be my life partner under all of it and no matter how ugly it got and I got ugly I mean I was on the uh you know with suicidal ideation almost every day so I was ugly and he got ugly he had some anger and temper coming out Mm -hmm. um and it got so ugly but I knew under it all that he would he is my life partner and I've always kind of felt that from the beginning and it's not something you can explain to outside people and I can imagine how hard it must have been to see that. But yeah, the worst thing was I suggesting that, to separate I accepted separate that it us. wasn't my place. Right. Well, maybe it was easier too because you're and my I younger sister. That's the thing. I'm not a parent. Yeah. I'm not super close in age, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what yeah. it was, but I was able to disconnect from that part. Yeah. And just kind of do more damage control, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was pretty intense. Yeah, because I came to visit you and... You came to visit... Well, you would come to my games. Yeah. And I would remember, like, thank God my team was really good. And I didn't necessarily need to be focused 100% <laughs> oh of the time. <laughs> because I would just wait for you to arrive. Uh, and if I, if you were late, I would get really stressed. Really? Yeah. Because that's where things were at, right? I was like, she's driving alone in the car with Leia. Yeah. An hour and a half. Yeah. Sometimes in the winter. Yeah. And you guys always sat in the same spot. So I was like, oh God, why aren't they here yet? why aren't they here yet you know and so as soon as you would get there I was like all right cool everything's fine but wow yeah and then a lot of sleepless nights you know just waiting by my phone 
and I didn't have a car at that point. I was borrowing one of my yeah, best friend's were cars to come up. Yeah, she knew. She knew everything. So I was like very thankful to her because whenever I needed her car, she would just let me take it across the border and you know, be in Montreal as long as I needed to be. Sometimes I was there for the weekend and yeah. Wow. Did you have a feeling that it would pass? That it was a temporary thing? I think I was hopeful, but you know, it it was pretty dark and I was just really worried about Lay. Yeah. You know, yeah. like obviously I was worried about you too. Yeah. But, you know, this was a baby. Because there were moments in that time when I was again lying in bed and I was, I, I, looking back now from this perspective today, I feel like I was out of my body. Mm. Like my soul, it's, it's interesting that like I wanted to die because it's almost like my soul was already, already half out. Like I was not there. And I remember there were some arguments between family members and Vitaly and like I would just completely be out of my body. Yeah. I would be gone. I would be like, this is too painful for me to bear I mean a big thing that I've always lived with is just wanting um harmony in my family (laughs) having grown up in a family that was a bit disharmonious for most of our childhood and being the eldest trying to keep everything together Mm. it's like this big thing that I um deeply desire and that was like the worst of it that it could be and yeah that it was coming into my family and I just couldn't deal I was I was checked out I think I knew you would get better though I think I was pretty hopeful I just didn't know how long it would take. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I considered dropping out of school. I think I told you that before. No. Yeah. I went to my coach and, you know, I told him that I might have to take a few months off. To be with me? To just live in Montreal. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Guys, I have an awesome sister, don't I? I'm, like, going to cry at how awesome no, she is. No, but it's just, it's just what you do. Like, it's not, you know, it's not a burden. It wasn't even a... It wasn't a tough choice for me. Obviously, it was, but it wasn't... I would do that in a heartbeat. I would have done that in a heartbeat. I was prepared to do it. I had told my coach. My professors were aware. I was ready to take a few months off. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's something that Vitaly brought up. He was talking with some people. I don't know how it came up, but he, he, he told me he was talking with a group of people and someone asked, like, what do you do if you're with someone in a really bad depressive state? Because Vitaly sometimes shares about meditation and and how to overcome like your negative thoughts and things like that and the person asked as a support person what do you do mm-hmm. and Vitaly was like the safety of the person is mm-hmm. number one and you have to be with them all the time and yeah. if you have to stop everything in your life to yeah. be with that person for that time then that's what you do and that's what he did he um he wasn't working and so we accumulated some debt it, i sometimes i i get i'm ashamed of some of the debt that we have but it i look at it as a gift i got yeah. that line of credit like a year before leah was born and if we hadn't had that we wouldn't have been able to do the healing in the way that we yeah. did it and vitali literally stopped everything once our kind of relationship had sort of settled stabilized, stabilized yeah. a little bit um he stopped everything and he was making sure I got outside he was making sure I ate well he was and that's what my mom did the first time I was bad too was taking the person out for walks in the sun and just like all that self-care because you hate yourself so much it's Mm. not there yeah and you need someone to do that and it's it is temporary it's just like a crutch it's like it's it's just helping that person do those self-care things, which little by little do 
at least maintain their body <laughs> while the mind yeah. and emotions are, are, you know, going crazy. And then, yeah. Um, one thing I think you're really good at is also like not being in this like savior mentality mm. of like fueling your ego with helping someone like that. Mm-hmm. Vitaly's also very good with with that. It's like I'm doing this because this is what has to be done now. Yeah, but it's not something that I that I need to like do for for, my, for myself for me yeah. to be good for me to no. feel good about myself. It's no. just like this needs to be done. Although if I wouldn't have done anything to help, I would have felt pretty crappy. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that. In a sense, it wasn't for my ego, but it I needed to be there for you and for Leia. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then that time I feel like I went so dark that I, I hit the bottom. <laughs> I hit the bottom of the pit and uh, and then it was only up from there. And at this point, I mean, I've alluded to it in some Instagram posts that I've done, like, that was so dark and so bad that it's literally at this point, like, well, anything that makes me happy is better than being there, so there's, like, almost no pressure of success because of that, and because of that, I have more room to succeed, yeah, so it's interesting, it, it, it releases so much energy to put towards actually succeeding in, in whatever I choose, um, yeah, so you became a social worker. Event well, you were already saying that always, in school, but I think even when I was young, I always knew I would be in a position to help someone. Right. No matter what it was, I was always fascinated by people in uniform, but I think right. that because there's no first responders in our family, I never really pursued it. The police. In the the police until now. Yeah. 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 But then went to social workers because it seemed very comfortable. Yeah. And yeah. And having been as, like, a first-liner in a situation like that close in your family, um, how were you, did that How did that add to your studies or as, like, a professional studying this? Did you find other people studying with you had had those kind of experiences? Definitely. I think most people do. All people who go into, into social, social work. work. Or yeah. so any kind of social services, I think. So, you know, my best friend at the time who was helping me a lot, well, she's still my best friend, she was also in the social work program. So she was very easy to talk to about it. You know, oh, she right. has a sibling you... who's going who went through something similar. Right. So, you know, it you find people that are like you or that have the similar experiences to you. Yeah. And that want the same things in their future career and you know. Yeah. But then eventually I finally just did it and got into policing. <laughs> Which is so cool. It was really fun. Yeah, and we're we're obviously like such different people with mm-hmm. our mental health and with our vulnerabilities yeah. and and we have and um I have my ways now to make sure I take care of myself and yeah. my mental health. And so um what are some of your ways and things that work for you? Um I mean, what was big for me, I think during both of your episodes yeah. was that I always had sports as an escape. And I didn't necessarily talk to that many people about it at you know, that were on my team or anything. But as soon as I went on the ice, I was checked out of everything else. Right. And that was it. So, you know, especially at Plattsburgh, it was even more helpful with that because although in some of the games, like I said, I would watch for where you were, if you were there or not, it was still just being able to go into the dressing room and have that, you know, family at the rink. Yeah. And just being able to escape. And, you know, just I've always dealt with my emotions in more of an athletic realm physical way it doesn't I don't need to talk about my emotions yeah like a few (laughs) my siblings do (laughs) but yeah that's just the 
the path I take to to keep my mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, so also talking about being worried for me. Like I think yeah. this is probably something that a lot of people who have close ones who go through these kind of things feel like this fear that it will always happen again or that it could always happen again. I don't necessarily have that. Um, but I think that's also just, you know, I'm not as emotional, I think. You're not a worrier. No, which helps. So I'm not thinking about that. You know, if I don't talk to you for a week, I'm not like, oh my God, she's spiraling again. Yeah, yeah. Right? Whereas maybe some others start to panic a little bit faster. Yeah. I, I, I don't really worry about that. It might also be because of where I'm at. And so you, you feel and you know yeah. that. And even I feel it. Like, yeah. after my first depression, one of the first things that my doctor said to me was, um, well, you know, this is, like, you have a 25% chance of this happening again. Yeah. And I was like, great, this is exactly what I need to hear as soon as I'm feeling better. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And I honestly think that was, like, a subconscious, like, setup for it to happen again. Um, and so it did. And then after I healed from that time, I told myself internally, I was like, no, I'm done. Thank you. I'm done suffering. Mm. And I, there can be other like external things, like uncontrollable circumstances that happen in my life that will be, could be horrible, but I will never do this to myself again and it was like this internal block and I remember telling my therapist about this even in the months after because the first few months after getting better are kind of scary it's like Mm -hmm. well what if I go back and if I go back it's like oh no and then you kind of spiral because you're just fearful about about going back but for me at that point there was this block this internal block that was like no we're not going there again so it would kind of like bounce off of that instead of diving down deep into the rest of the pool um Um, i think one thing that's important to mention though as a support person especially a sibling is that i think the first time around i felt like because you were depressed i had to be i couldn't have fun Mm. you know i i almost felt guilty if i was out with friends having fun while i know my sister is back at home oh yeah you know having those thoughts so the second time around i think was a bit easier to let go of that interesting and to just you know what i'm allowed to be happy yeah i'm there for my sister but i think it's really important to not carry around that guilt as a support person because it's really easy to do it's like when someone dies right you don't want to be happy because they're not here because they're not here but i think you're allowed to be happy well there's a lot of self-care that you need to make sure you're doing yeah so that that heavy heavy load and charge yeah. doesn't and my friend was pivotal that second time around whereas i didn't have her the that, first time it happened because she had been through it too just because she was a sounding board okay. you know she knew what to say and when not to say anything and just sit there and listen because she also knew my personality and that i didn't really want to talk about it but that i kind of had to talk about it yeah so we would just be watching a movie and i'd blurt something out <laughs> and she wouldn't even she would almost just not even acknowledge that i said it which just was perfect let you yeah so but yeah i think it's important to not think that you have to to not feel the guilt and the shame yourself because someone close to you is going through that yeah and having been through it now i feel like there's a lot of fear when we see someone going into these dark places um i've i haven't had a fear of death since i was a kid and i think that's part of why 
I almost went through this was because like death doesn't scare me too much, but I was just suffering a lot and looking for a way out of suffering. Um, and so even when people bring up ideas of suicide, um, I told this to a mother once who was talking about her, her child going through suicidal thoughts and it can be, I like, I mean, it's easy for me to say, but I haven't had my own child go through this, but Mm we don't need to be so afraid of it. No. You know, like sometimes it can be very cleansing and there can be a lot of benefits to someone going through a period like this. How do you feel when I say something like that? I see you. I don't think it's necessary. Did I say the word necessary? You said it, well. I don't, I don't, I don't mean know. necessary. I don't think you said necessary. I said beneficial. It can be I guess cleansing. if someone goes through it, there's no point looking at it, regretting it. But if you don't go through it, it's I don't I don't think it I don't think it's necessary to every person's life. No. But I think there are some people with certain temperaments who go through that as a way of understanding themselves or getting rid of negative thoughts or cleansing their thought process or something. And that in that sense, it can be an okay and useful experience for their whole life experience. And so if we can support it in the best way that we can and not put a pressure on them to be better, mm-hmm. that's I think what I'm getting at mm-hmm. is that sometimes there's a pressure from external people like, I just want you to be happy, which is like true. I guess it it doesn't mean not to say that, but sometimes the added pressure of having to be better is just more pressure. But that's exactly what I felt. That's why I I feel like I wasn't pressuring you to get better. I was more just, like I said, damage control, be there when needed, make sure life is good. Yeah. And not pressuring you to get better. You'll get better on your own time. Yeah. Yeah. So you knew that. Yeah. 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 And I think that being in social work helped because... You know, I was understanding the psychology behind it a little yeah. bit and talking to some professionals about it. And do you know how a social worker and like a psychiatrist would address it differently? Everyone's. Okay, our brother tried calling me on my phone, so the recording changed. But yeah, Cam, my question was if a psychiatrist or a social worker would address it differently. I think every professional is different in how they approach it. There's no one way to do it and social workers and psychiatrists do very similar work yeah you're trained in the same methods right just but i think it's just a different approach just that the psychiatrist will tend to turn towards medication more depending only because they have that as an added as an option yeah whereas in social work we don't have that as an option other than to maybe refer you to a psychiatrist (laughs) (laughs) but social workers might involve be more keen to involve the family Mm. i would think just from what I've seen, but uh, I didn't really work in one-on-one therapy sessions. Yeah, we have to ask our sister. We have to ask Gabby that. <laughs> our other sister, who's I also always, a social yeah. worker and, and working in counseling as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, one thing I wanted to say was that I went to see, so my two experiences with psychiatrists were them offering me medication right off the bat, like, oh, I'll just write you up this prescription and you can go get it right today. <laughs> and Social workers don't have that as a tool, but I kind of appreciate that because pharmaceutical medications don't agree so well with me and I'm my body's pretty sensitive to things and that's not a good 
first line of action for me. Um, in university, I kind of accidentally found myself with a psychiatrist to get a note to be excused from a midterm exam. And she was like, well, I think you have GAD, general anxiety disorder, and I'm going to give you this prescription. And I was like, I just have like a stress headache right now. I I don't want that. <laughs> you know, it wasn't even like, do you want a medication to help? It was like, here is a medication to help. And I think we have, I think they should be more careful with how they're presenting that and giving it out and uh, that there are other ways because there are so many people um, who get addicted to these medications and I have a really hard time coming off of them. Not to say, I mean, there, there are some success stories and I do know um, people and women with postpartum depression who have had success uh, improving their mental health and with medication and then coming off of it. Um, but that was not a, not a way for me and, uh, just that there are other ways. So that will be, I think it for today, unless Cam, there's anything else you wanted to add as a sister, as a support person. Um, I think just don't be afraid to talk about it with other people for you to find your own support people. Right. Right. It's not, you know, you're not the only one that has to carry it. And I think we're lucky because we have a big family. Yeah. But for those who might feel alone in it, you know, you don't have to be the only support person. You can also have a support person. And like you said, there can, did you feel shame? You said you felt shame about your friend's situation, but did you feel shame about my situation? The first time around, I definitely didn't talk about it with, I think only one person knew what was going on. Yeah. And that, and the only reason why they knew is because I would be late to practice sometimes. Right. So I had no choice. But other than that, I kept it pretty hush-hush. But that's because no one even really talked about it back when I was in high school, you know? Right. It's like, We heard that open. people were committing suicide, but we weren't talking about the mental health aspect of it. We just heard that someone had taken their own life. Imagine. You, so, don't, you don't talk about everything that comes up before that. No. You just talk about the final result. Right. So, you know, and I was doing my own little experimenting with what worked for me and... You know, maybe dealing with things not the right way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I think it's just important to lean on the people that you can and to not feel, to not carry their guilt onto you Mm, and their shame. Right. Like, you're allowed to have your own happy moments and you don't have to be there 24-7. Because if you can't take care of yourself, then you can't take care of them. Yeah. Right? So, that's it. Thanks, Cam. You're welcome. I love your groundedness. Thanks. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're signing off for today. Uh, if anyone wants to contact me or us with questions or feedback, feel free uh, to do that through Instagram is the best way right now at this raw mom life. And uh, I will be coming on soon again you for another my, podcast. You can put my Instagram on there too if people want to contact. Okay, if you want to contact Cam, who is a social worker and soon police police officer. officer. Yeah, she... (laughs) She rather identify with police officer. Uh, I will put her information in the description. It's Cam... Leonard. Leonard with two M's. Cam Elizabeth. Cam, Cam Elizabeth with two M's on Instagram. And you can definitely reach out to her uh, if, if what she says and her experience resonates with you. So have a beautiful day, wonderful people. Goodbye.